Here's something a little different. I found a podcast that was so freaking fascinating. Meet Mary and Shelly from Latter Day Lesbian. Shelly is a divorced mother of seven, dealing with leaving the Mormon church and coming to terms with her sexuality. Already I'm hooked. Mary is a recovering evangelical Christian and a career lesbian, as Shelly puts it. Together, they're processing all the religious BS and navigating a romantic relationship through a podcast that's raw, honest, and funny. Check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. Here is a sneak peek. Hey, I'm Mary. And I'm Shelly. From the Latter-day Lesbian Podcast. Shelly, what's our podcast about? It's about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out life. Is that you? Are you the ex-Mormon? I am ex-Mormon, born and raised Mormon. Got married young, had seven kids. Yeah, I'm still dealing with that. Yeah, yep. same. Mm-hmm. Left the church, came out of the closet, got divorced, restarted life. I know, and we kind of unpack all that on the podcast, plus much more. I do, you know, jump in from time to time with something to say. <laughs> you do. Once in a while, when mm-hmm. you let me get a word in. Mm-hmm. It's been like twice. It's nice of you. You're welcome. On our show, we laugh a lot. Um, yeah. You think? Laughter is the best medicine. Well, we need medicine because we are healing from religious trauma. The struggle is real. God, lots of it. (laughs) We have lots of people write in, call in, and we answer questions. We have people on the show. We're very interactive. Lots is going on. So check out Latter Day Lesbian wherever you listen to podcasts. What she said. Don't run out into the street. I don't want you out of my sight. Don't play on the front porch. Don't leave the property. Watch where you're going. Look both ways. As a parent, do you find yourself in a constant state of panic that your kids are going to get run over by a car or get abducted? I live in the city. I'm always on high alert. When I was growing up, the front door was always unlocked and I could wander and play wherever I wanted. And it's no secret, it is a different time now. But what if we rewound our parenting ways back to the 80s? You know, like Stranger Things parents. They're barely existent and the kids have their very own world. Outside of fighting demigorgons, what if you let your kids just be? Go where they want. Have more freedom and autonomy. What if there are studies that show that this could improve your child's mental health? and capabilities immensely. Well, if you heard episode 175 of Late Learner about understanding your adolescence, and if you did, thank you for sharing that one. It was a groundbreaking conversation starter. And the ideas were so flipped from what we know, but effective. And she's back again. This one also might melt your brain, but in the best possible way. So Cindy Robinson, the fan favorites, parent and teen coach is back. And that means I suggest you listen to this also with a very open mind, because I promise this is going to sound very counterintuitive to what we're taught today, but it might make all the difference in the mental health and wellness of your entire family dynamic and empower your kids to completely flourish. And before we jump in, a quick note that you can keep this show going by becoming a supporter of Late Learner and supporting me as an independent creator. Get all these episodes ad-free and early at patreon.com forward slash late learner. Let's rewind the clock back to the 80s and find out what would happen if we raised our kids now like they do in Stranger Things with Cindy Robinson. I'm so excited to welcome Cindy Robinson back to the culture clash type of episode. Welcome, Cindy. Woohoo! I love doing these with you. <laughs> these are so freaking fun. So this is where we take a one pop culture topic and then we break it down. And Cindy has this really cool background in mindfulness space and intuitive healing. Tell us how did you, what is your perspective of this whole thing? Of Stranger Things or... We're going to talk Stranger Things today. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think, I mean, it's just a great show. Personally, I think it's an awesome show. But I think uh, the conversation that I saw come from the show was how to have a childhood or, or, you know, that we want to create a childhood for our kids that looks like the Stranger Things childhood. 
And I just thought, yes, could we please make that so freaking a popular juicy topic? Too. I already am coming up with like, but what about, what about, wait, 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 <laughs> what about, it's not all that it looks like. Um, and Cindy, can you tell us your background? Um, sure. I mean, so I do uh, what's called intuitive healing for parents and teens. If it sounds made up, it's because it is. <laughs> but it basically just means helping parents find their intuition so they can parent in a way that feels actually authentic and not through their own childhood trauma. And then I work with teens who um, are just feeling having usually at the uh, intersection of ADHD, anxiety, or OCD, having two of those three diagnoses, mm. helping them understand that on a deeper level um, so that they can move forward empowered in their diagnosis versus ashamed of it. That is such deep work too. And so that's why I like parenting and the concept of parenting. And uh, do you like Stranger Things? Is this like a show for you? I'm a big geek for Stranger <laughs> Things. I love Who's the show. Who's your favorite character? I have two chickens named after characters oh, from the show. So. Steve Harrington and Eddie Munson. <laughs> but no, Steve Harrington is my all-time fave character. Okay. Um, my son cosplays as him. Like he... Oh, no way. Yeah. So we're very legit on Steve. What did you think of season four? I loved it. I loved that it went hardcore into horror. Like, um, do you know that the creators have movies that inspire each season? No. Something like that. Yeah. So... When they even presented the pilot for the show, they didn't have a pilot. They had clips of like Jaws, um, Goonies, and E.T., I think, that they spliced the films together and then showed them like, we want to make a show like this. Hmm. And so each season kind of has these little uh, homages to different films. And so, it, you know, Freddy Krueger makes a cameo. Do you know this? Oh, I, I yeah. know this. I was, <laughs> we were cheering in our living room. We were so excited. Yeah. And so that was Friday. Uh, wait, no, he's Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. That was one of the inspirations. Yeah. Robert England. Four. Yeah. So that was, so I love the horror twist of the season. What about you? So I love Stranger Things. My husband and I have been watching it and they actually film right in our neighborhood. And so, you know, where the, the Hawkins lab is, is right down the street from us. It's at Emory. And so, it, and, and they're always filming there too. So it's kind of fun to see all the, the filming trucks and all kinds of stuff. So, and then of course the nostalgia, you know, like mm -hmm. we grew up in the eighties and, you know, like so much of it, even like the wood paneling and the pots and pans they use feel really warm and inviting, you know, like even the Eggo <laughs> waffles <laughs> yeah, and all of that. And I think it's funny that your favorite characters are not 11, you know? <laughs> you would think 11? Yeah. Why? I, I, I think because she's the badass with the superpowers, you know? <laughs> so that's your favorite character then is uh, 11. I don't know. I love Dustin. I think I'm a mm -hmm. Dustin girl. But um, yeah, so, so this summer... My kids kept hearing, now my kids are nine and seven, and they kept hearing about Stranger Things. And we're like, no, 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 you cannot watch this, you know? And so I guess they were hearing about it in camp, and they were talking about it, and they're like, can we watch the trailer? So they'd watch the trailer over and over and over and over again. And we're like, all right, so we're on vacation. It was hot as balls at the beach in Florida, and we spent all day binging Stranger Things with our kids. And the thing about the first season, it's not really scary. You don't see anything. It's just the threat of some kind of creepy mystery thing. And so they totally got hooked as well. And so they're playing, of course, running up that hill all the time. <laughs> um, but season four, I loved, except for the Russia thing. I was so annoyed <laughs> with the Russia thing. Like that, that what was that guy's name? Oh, um, Slavic. So, I don't remember because oh, it I wasn't my favorite character. So. But he, I don't know if you remember Yakov. Yuri. 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 Do you remember who Yakov Smirnov yes. was? He was like that, like this goofy thing that would have these awful teeth and would just make these bad corny jokes and laugh at everything and I was like I don't get it I don't want it I don't want any of it I want like the love story I want the little crafty smart kids that have no parents that are running around <laughs> running around Hawkins uh saving the world uh I'm all about it so um but I wonder because there was an article that came out was it in Wall Street Journal or New York Times about about the Stranger Things childhood? Yes. It was New York Post. New York Post. Okay. Yeah. And what did it say? It said, and the article had 
holes to be filled, if I'm being honest. But I liked the gist of it. I liked that it was going viral, um, that we should be trying to provide a Stranger Things childhood for your kid. It was like the case for giving your kid a Stranger Things childhood. So you and I have talked about this at length, on the mic, off the mic, about uh, releasing the reins a little bit more on our kids and allowing them to have more independence. And then you think of immediately murder, rape, kidnap, <laughs> death, uh, get hit by a truck, you know, like, and then you just pull them right back in. <laughs> so how do you, what did, what did it say in the New York Post? Um, the article basically laid out uh, the, what a Stranger Things childhood would look like and um, the case for why, why would we want to raise our kids that way? So it, the reason, or like what it would look like would be less structure, um, less things to have to do after school, a lot more coming home from school and going out with friends unsupervised by adults, <gasps> <laughs> a lot more boredom, like a lot more just locking the kids out, kicking them out, making them go play, and uh, not really knowing where they are all the time. So what's the feedback been? Well, the, I think the the article went viral um and i think a lot of people love the idea of it because they remembered their own freedom in the 80s yes. they remembered all the stuff that they did and all the forts they built and all the cool yes. they that's why we love stranger things because it reminds us of that time but um but but now are wondering well like why did i bring them inside <laughs> like why don't my kids have that and it's this idea that it is a more dangerous world or something but it's actually it's actually not at all so i think uh the response is I think a lot of people think in theory that sounds awesome, but I don't know that people are actually taking the steps to move forward right. and do it. So how do you even begin? So as I'm thinking, okay, so when I think about my own childhood is that I grew up in an affluent neighborhood in New Jersey and it was really hilly. You know, each house was really far from each other, but there was a lot of woods to play in. And so we would play like horror movies in our own woods and stuff. And I remember my brothers used to uh, pop off my Barbie head off the <laughs> like tray where you could do the hair and makeup. And they would like burn the red ring around the, um, the milk carton onto the face and make it look scary and just scare the shit out of neighbors, you know, like put like just pop. <laughs> they would like half burn the Barbie head and put it on a, a broom handle and just mess with people. And so all of this is done, obviously, without parental supervision and, you know, mom and dad hang, ha hanging out with the crafts, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it was a different time. And so we left the doors unlocked. There was a lot of kids in the neighborhood. We all would run out um, and be with each other. So there was so much less supervision. But then I think about latchkey kids, you know, back then as well was, had such a big stigma, like what your mom has to work, you know, yeah. why isn't she home? And so I wonder about with phones, with the, the added danger, at least from a perception perspective, how is it more safe now than it was then oh well just statistically every possible crime rate that we were worried about then it wasn't even that high then but it's lower i mean just kidnappings don't happen from strangers i mean i, I don't want to say they don't happen of course they happen but the statistics are like, what are the stats on it i don't have that one off the top of my head but it's ridiculously low ridiculously low. I'll do a post And on in fact, it. the I'll New York Post article, I do believe, lays out what that statistic is. But murders, all these things. So the scary things that actually happen to people in real time happen from people they know. And we always just had the stranger danger, this idea that only strangers the did Sex trafficking is such a, is, is so big. It, it's very popular. Yes. Sex trafficking. However, um, how sex trafficking most often happens is it starts online. And they establish a relationship with a young person online and they convince that young person to come and meet them somewhere in public. So sex trafficking, wait, we picture just somebody getting like snatched up off the street while they're playing with a group of friends. But... That statistically is not the most likely way for it to happen. Statistically, it's starting online. 
that's why sex trafficking could go up so much is because we you know just like on like the internet connected all of us it also connected you know pedophiles mm. and rapists and sex traffickers mm. so they built a stronger network and they literally have a manual on how to you know get to groom kids and get them to um you know figure out which kids are susceptible to, to trafficking and they they use that information but this stuff isn't happening on the playground really like we think it is mm. so your kids are safer they were safer than you were when you were playing outside in the 80s and i do know the mortality rate for um high schoolers is 0.5 percent so 99.5 percent of teenagers make it through all their shenanigans, you know, oh my in high school. So, you know, if you're worried about, oh, but what if? Um, that That's just not very likely that anything will happen. I just, so I feel my body even start to tense up just thinking about this. And Cindy and I had a conversation, this is probably a year or two ago. And you had, as you always do, you present an idea that I'm like, fuck no and then you explain it and I'm like oh that makes sense you know <laughs> sorry and that was you know like our kids my kids should be able to walk out and go down the street and buy themselves an ice cream without supervision and so uh and so I was like yeah but what if they get hit like my husband immediately thinks you know like they run out into the street people are crazy driving they're gonna you know we live in the city and so you live out in the exurbs, I guess this would be the exurbs. It's rural, yeah. Kind of rural. Yeah. And so it feels like there's a lot of space here, mm -hmm. whereas in the city it is not. And you say it's even safer in the city. Oh, yeah. You have more eyes, you know, watching yeah. out for your kids. You have, Your kids have more people they can go to for help that are likely to be safe people. You should, you know, you should walk with them across the street first. Like, like don't just lock your four-year-old outside and, <laughs> and be like, good luck out there, buddy. <laughs> Like walk with them, you know, show them how to be safe. I, my whole thing, and I learned this from Julie Lithcott-Hames, who does a really good TED Talk, but she has a book called How to Raise an Adult. And her whole thing is do it with them, watch them do it, and then let them do it on their own. Mm. So, you know, f all these things that you, you know, if you want to give your child the Stranger Things childhood, like first go out with them, show them what spaces are safe, what's private property, you know, what, where they can and can't be. And then kind of watch them go and be on their own. But then eventually take your eyes off. Because like you said, somebody would have stopped your, your brother at some point from burning the, <laughs> the Barbie head and <laughs> tormenting people. But I would argue a whole lot was learned in that process. A whole lot about social and emotional communication. A whole lot about resilience and things. So we don't want to know everything our kids are doing because we're going to intervene if we know. Mm. And the intervention stops growth. So from what age do you recommend starting this? And I'm going to brace myself for your answer. Well, I would say it's a developmental age. So like the average person of this age, I would say you want to be going with them, you know, up to like five. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> and then you want to observe them, you know, from maybe like, it depends. But if they're an average responsible kid for their age, then five to seven you want to observe you know maybe you see them over across the street on the playground or whatever um, but then you really want to allow them to go play now they have to prove that they have earned the ability to do that so if they're making really risky decisions while you're watching it's what maybe, are risky decisions what are what is like a red flag and what is like mama you need to back off it's okay <laughs> i would just say anything that has an obvious outcome of harm you know and i can't i could sit here and give you a thousand examples but you have to ask yourself as a parent, like, is this an obvious outcome of harm or am I projecting way into the future to, to see any kind of harm? Well, I think that's the problem is the catastrophizing, you know, that yeah. we are so guilty of doing. Yeah. And so I thought about your idea and I talked to my kids and I could tell they want more independence. Like they crave it. I could tell they, they, you know, they want to, they want to kind of spread their wings a little bit. And I don't think that means they want to go wander out and Ponce City Market and just, you know, uh, buy some candy by themselves. <laughs> I don't know. But um, so I told them, you know, I think we, I, I can see you want more independence and we would love to help train you and, and help you feel more comfortable being able to do this. 
And what happened was they're like, mom, uh, can we see there's like a construction, a house under construction. There's a big pile of dirt down the end of our street. Can we go? And so I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I texted everyone on the neighborhood and said, my kids are fine. Can you keep an eye out? You know, just keep your eyes out on them. We're teaching them independence. You know, we're trying to teach them that. So I felt like that was good. But then I immediately went into overdrive and I was like, if you see anybody who looks weird or asks you for candy, you run the hell home, you know, like you scream or you find that or whatever it is. And so uh, they went and they came back five minutes later because they were scared shitless of oh, what I said, you know, so how do you yeah. how, how do you teach them about tricky people? Yeah, well, I think that. <laughs> You maybe don't be so terrifying, but no, I mean, I'm learning. It's a process. Well, the most important thing is to keep in mind is that most of the tricky people your kids encounter are going to be people that you know and they know. And so it's more about learning body autonomy mm. and empowerment about being able to advocate for themselves. So if you're teaching them self-advocacy skills and allowing them to have body autonomy you know like not making them what does body autonomy look like in a tricky situation like who to hug and who not to hug like if your kid doesn't really want to hug somebody you don't make them or if um they don't really feel like talking to that person because maybe they don't know them well enough or they're getting an icky vibe off them no don't make them do it and so just saying like if anything makes you uncomfortable you don't do it and you have to back that up as a parent which mm. means a lot of awkward moments mm -hmm. probably around family and stuff but if you're doing that, um, A, that teaches them, but then you can say like, hey, don't, you don't have to talk about like if somebody has candy and they're going to take you in your van and run off with you, you know, you can <laughs> just be like, if anyone makes you feel many after school specials. <laughs> yeah, it could be simpler of just like, if you feel uncomfortable, whether it be someone else makes you uncomfortable or you just do, you come home and you don't necessarily have to tell every horror story. <laughs> unless unless they ask, you know, if you want to go down that road, but you don't want to necessarily overshare and then terrify them. So if they're not near home, how do we tell them to escape a tricky situation? I guess you would have, I mean, I don't know where you're imagining they are, but I, I, I don't know. I'm imagining myself <laughs> as a parent saying, go ahead. I don't have my eyes on you. I'm going to sit and watch Netflix. I'm going to watch Stranger Things while you guys. <laughs> to make myself feel okay yeah. about this decision. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think you do always want to have a safety plan and I, for, I can just tell you what we did, but, yeah. uh, you just have a safety plan because everybody lives in different situations. But, um, for our son, we were like, if you ever aren't sure you get lost or something like that, you know, this honestly, cause statistically the safest person is a woman and the most safe is a woman with children. So we would always tell him that, like, if you get lost or you're not sure what to do, the first person you look for is a woman with children because she's going to be statistically the safest stranger you're going to find or just find a woman, which sounds sexist, but I'm just going off the stats. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say just go run and ask anybody for help. I'm going to say here are the safest people in order of <laughs> of safety. If you don't have, you know, that option, then, then I guess go to whatever guy you can find. I don't know where my child would be, but we would always <laughs> say... If you can't find us or if you get scared or if something happens, here's who to look for for safety. So how did this work with your son? What are the benefits? Um, everything. I, I'm it was look, listen, it was scary. Let me be clear. Your son is how old now? He's fourteen. Okay. And I would say he's emotionally sixteen. Okay. <laughs> Probably twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> he's trends older. Um, but it's the best thing we could have ever done. Like, I cannot say how many ways he is autonomous, he's capable, he makes pretty good decisions, but you have to start earlier. I feel like we look at teens and we want them to just be ready to make good decisions like right out of the gate. And then they're like, well, I can't give my teen autonomy. That's what I hear a lot of is like, oh, I can't give them autonomy because they will, they've proven that they'll make this or that mistake. And yeah, that's true. And so they now, since they weren't able to build it at an earlier age, you have a longer road ahead of you. But if I could catch parents younger and say, do this now, let them practice autonomy now, 
then they will see that by the time they're teenagers, they don't have kind of the same worries that a lot of parents of teenagers have because their teens know how to navigate situations. My son was running through abandoned buildings. Uh, we, we timed this out. I asked him, I was like, what age were you then? He was like between eight and 10 years old. And he was running in abandoned buildings. That was not where he was supposed to fun. be. <laughs> yeah. He said it's the best memory of his life. Um, that is not was he where, with friends? Yeah, he was with friends that live in the city. And there was some construction in, in buildings nearby. And they wanted to go see about it. They went all the way to the roof. Um, I'm sure a million safety hazards along the way. But uh, I didn't know about that. I would have stopped him at the time if I had known about it. But good thing that I knew to let kids go play. Because he, he says that's some of the best memories that he's ever had. And he learned so much about how to be safe and, you know, what, what's too far and what not to do and, you know, what friends have different influences. And he bonded with people. So just saying. So it sounds idyllic, you know, like I think of abandoned buildings and I remember going into literally abandoned insane asylums and how fun that was, you know, yeah. with with friends uh, dark at night with flashlights. And it was really, really fun. And I think what, you know, if you're thinking about stranger things, like these were clever kids, right? Like they, they were autonomous. They um, looked out for each other. They had really strong bonds and they did, um, they were smart. Like they were really smart. They could problem solve um, and use their own strengths to problem solve together. And so one of the things you you talk about a lot that I think needs to be addressed is how important it is for your kids to make mistakes and to get yeah. in trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's how you learn what you're capable of is that you push too far and you make a mistake or you ch test out a certain theory about your identity and you realize that's not an accurate, you know, identity for you to wear. Yeah, mistakes. I, I love them. I'm a big fan. You have to be okay with it. Um, and when parents are talking about like, the, like hearing me say, I let my son run through an abandoned building at eight years old and they're thinking of all the injuries, there is a level of risk, but you really have to almost be like, do I want broken bones or do I want, you know, an anxiety disorder? Like, or do I want a depressed teen? And I don't mean to make so it. So talk about the stats around that. So if it is, I think that's what's important to draw the conclusion or conclusive evidence or statistical data on because kids are so overprotected that they start to inherit some challenging, you know, challenging coping mechanisms that leave them how? Um, usually depressed. Like if you take away any human's autonomy, then the, the purpose for living goes away with that. And the what is the point of life and all that is usually what's at the heart of depression is usually this sort of inner question of like, well, what's the point? And so kids need to be autonomous. They need, they, they want autonomy, as you can tell by how they constantly try to run away and they constantly try to say, I do it myself um, from day one. They want autonomy. And when we rob them of it and we don't give them the opportunity what we're saying is I don't believe you can manage this I don't think you can do this here let me do it um, and they just don't get the opportunities to build resilience to build whatever skills that they need to learn on their own through failure and then you really are just kind of left with well what is the point um, if I'm if I can't do anything on my own, what is the point of being here? And that's when you see a lot of depression. Also, when you see a lot of anxiety, like if you're constantly saying things are scary, you can't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Everything's bad's going to happen because we are carrying our own anxiety as parents. Mm. Then you often see, I mean, kids can inherit that anxiety naturally, but then also obviously constantly hearing that everything is scary will cause you know, to, you to be pretty anxious too. So I've got two things that are coming up. One is the phones. And so there are a lot of tracking devices. I forget what it's called. Something 360. Do you mm -hmm. know what I'm talking Life about? Life 360. Life 360, where you can track your child wherever they are at whatever time yeah. <laughs> and whatever friend's house. Are you for those? Are you against those? Are those helpful? You know, there are a lot of tracking devices out there and, you know, like I think my kids don't have phones, they don't have devices yet. 
but I think I would be all up in that device <laughs> tracking them wherever they were. Um, as far as what I'm for and against is whatever makes it possible for your child to have the most autonomy possible. So like whatever makes you feel the most comfortable about giving your child autonomy. So there's the Gizmo Watch, which is basically a GPS device that you can also text and call through. If putting that on your child's wrist makes you feel okay about them heading up the you know, heading up the cul-de-sac to hang out with friends, then do it. If, um, you know, if having that makes you scared of everything they do and they're constantly restricting what they're doing, then I would argue against you allowing for that. So the key word here is autonomy. Like that's what the Stranger Things crew Mm. had. And they clearly had it from an early age. So they were able to build that resilience to handle aliens and monsters and other realms (laughs) (laughs) and they're not going to just be born with that resilience so whatever tool you need to use that makes you allow for the most possible autonomy for your kids it's interesting because when i think about my own childhood i uh, we had a lot of doors in our house and i snuck out all the time and I would call out of school my mom my mom's voice sounds like my voice so I'd call like hey this is Judith Risk my daughter Allison is not feeling well today she won't be there and then I would go off with my friends and my mom used to go bananas because the people I was hanging out with they weren't up to her par you know and so there was a lot of question over would I go to college? Am I hanging with the wrong people? These were not people that lived very close. They were like 20, 30 minutes away. Um, And they would come and pick me up. And, you know, we would just hang out. To me, it felt innocent. But I also did sleep over a lot of people's homes when I was supposed to be at a girlfriend's house, you know, where there would be guys, there'd be a party, there would be whatever. And so I think understanding it from my lens I was not promiscuous. I, you know, I certainly made dumb decisions, but I was not, uh, I I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink where a lot of people did, you know? And so from that perspective, maybe it's okay, but there's so much drugs and alcohol (laughs) available and pills, you know, like I, I, I need some help here, Cindy. Well, it's just funny that you said that like, oh, yeah, I made some poor decisions, but I didn't drink or I didn't do drugs. And I'm like, those <laughs> those are not the end of the world. I'm not like pro drugs and pro drinking, but I'm just saying that there are lots of really good people in this world who drank as teenagers and who did drug yeah, as yeah, teenagers. Yeah. So when you look at the end result, like I, I find you to be an enjoyable person and I think you're doing good things in the world. Well, it sounds like we all kind of agree that some of the decisions you made as a teenager were mistakes and errors and judgment and and just, you know, poor choices. But what I would like people to start questioning is whether that's a necessary step towards becoming the perfectly lovely human that I see in front of me. So when you see your teenagers making poor decisions and making mistakes or try to turn a blind eye so you don't see all of it. Um, that you understand that's a building block towards a good person. Like we tend to think, oh, thank God I turned out like this in spite of all that. But it's because of all that, that you Mm. learned things from making poor choices and you learned things from choosing friendships that were bad or relationships that were toxic. All of that was really necessary for you to learn who you ultimately are. You have all this sage calmness about this. And (laughs) I don't, you know, I wonder about, like the words to say, you say this a lot, that your job as a parent is to give them a safe place to fall. And that's it. Yeah. Well, as to say, have boundaries. Okay. And be a safe place to fall. So if it is a safe place to fall, how do you create that environment with your child and setting the proper boundaries that aren't too overbearing, allow them autonomy, but when your immediate instinct is to fucking ground them and rail on them and, you know, whatever. How do you handle those? Um, well, a good way for for parents to know when they're doing that, because I could talk about this as some sort of sage way, like you say, and every parent's going to be like, yeah, totally. But, <laughs> but where they might not hear themselves and where I have to check myself a lot is um, protect. So we really shouldn't be in a protector role. So more than like we're supposed to be the safe place to fall, It's just as important that I say we're not supposed to protect our children 
from anything ever happening to them. That's mm. not our job because it's not realistic. So if you ever, when you talk about you want to ground them, you want to do all these things to them, or you want to warn them, or you want to stop them, prevent them from making a mistake, those are all different words for protect, right? Like you're grounding them for their protection or you're reacting the way you are, they, they are because you feel like you failed to protect them. And so um, when you hear, when you're starting to feel, you know, your blood boil or you're starting to respond to them or you're thinking about they just made a mistake, what do I do? I want you to take like the protector out of you. That wasn't what you were supposed to ever be doing. You're not supposed to be the protector. Because if you're thinking of yourself as a protector, say your child might make a poor choice and you're going to go ahead and assume that they might, you know, you're going to take that choice away from them and um, prevent them from making that poor choice. Well, what you've become is you're the opposing person. You know, now it's you versus them and they, you literally to them look like an obstacle to their growth. They don't understand that and you don't understand that, but it's just what's true. Hmm. You're the obstacle. You're the thing in the way. And so they're not taking advice from you. They're not coming to you when things go wrong. But if you're the safe place to fall, then you're no longer being the obstacle and you're going to allow room for them to make that poor choice, which is very hard. But when they make it and they suffer the consequences of it, then you're there to be like, mistakes are a part of life. This sucks for you. I will sit with you in this. Let's figure this out together. How can I support you? What do you need? And that's a very different person in that child's life than the one who's just constantly trying to protect them, but really just constantly getting in the way. Mm. That's an interesting reframe. And now I have to bring up the the hardest part of this is something you can't control is that society is not set up for this. And so all the other parents, you know what I mean? Like, how do you convince them to that your child is safe? And, you know, if your child goes out to somebody else's who lets them, you know, play, I don't know, Fortnite or connect with weird people or whatever <laughs> online, you know, or, or watch porn, who knows? Um, who have more lax parents, who knows? How do you handle that? How do you handle and change society, Cindy? Go. Uh, yeah, that, well, you can't. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. I mean, the thing about Stranger Things, the, none of those kids had the cops called on them. You know, well, I guess maybe they did. <laughs> <laughs> A little name? bit. Yeah, but to help. <laughs> um, but the parents weren't, you know, punished. There were other kids outside to play with. There are lots of factors about, you know, the Stranger Things childhood that don't necessarily exist. It has to be intentional. So what was sort of the default in the 80s now has to be something you make intentional. And it literally means you have to find a group of people who think the same way that you do. There's Facebook groups for this. Um, what are those Facebook groups? Oh, it, it depends on your, your area. So you want to find one. I, th I think the one in our area is called Wild and Free. And then what there's... What do you look for? Like, what is there a search that could kind of bring up people like this? Um, usually, if you can find, like, like, if you have younger kids, nature parent groups, you know, that go out in nature, usually they're going to be kind of the odd duck parents that are looking mm -hmm. for a more free-range childhood. Um, or... You know, and that's the thing. That's if you're starting early. Once your kid's in the teens, you it's harder to find those people, um, quite honestly. But you have to just talk to your kid's friend's parents and say, hey, what if we all, I mean, this is what I do, is whoever my kid's friend's with, I now he has their numbers. But back when I had the parents' numbers, then I would say, hey, what if we all go drop our kids off in, you know, downtown Alpharetta? What if we all go take our kids to this park? And we would just drop them off and leave them. And it turns out they would go to abandoned buildings and <laughs> railroad tracks them. and all but kinds of But they were together. Things. So there was a group. They were together yeah. and they were solid people. Solid people make bad decisions, but usually not death, you know, mm -hmm. like not usually like not like the life and death decisions. So that's all I can say. Grab grab the group that your kid's friends with and coordinate with them. Like, hey, here's what we're trying to do. And then plan, where are we going to go ditch these kids? And <laughs> some parents hang out a little more closely. and Some disappear completely and are just like, peace out. And I'm somewhere in between. But that's what you do. You find people and you just say, let's do this. Like how you text the neighborhood and said, this is what my kids are doing. You send a signal out to the whole neighborhood to let them know this is what we're doing. So if there's other parents doing something similar, 
you're probably going to hear something back from them. Huh. So how do you, I'm, I'm, I think I remember that you have very intentional ways or conscious parenting ways that you've done. Have you seen a, like, were you always like this from the get go? Or is this something you learned along the way? And, you know, how did your son respond? Yeah, no, this was not how I always was. I was very, um, how do you raise a successful kid was my mindset. It was like I was going to re- raise the most healthy kid on the planet. And what I was told societally was enroll him in a bunch of after-school programs like gymnastics and swimming and teach him all these things, um, get him into the best charter school, um, get him in early tutoring, math tutoring, so he can be advanced at math, teach him a musical instrument because that makes people more well-rounded, well-rounded learn, right. learn another language because that raises their IQ. I was doing all of that. Um, and it, I ended up with like a kid with anxiety. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? I was doing all this work. So I just took a deeper dive into that. And I found out that all of that is a facade. None of that is real. And what actually makes humans happy is things like autonomy and free play. And so through that journey is how I found to where I am now. But um, no, that transition for him was uh, e- like a relief. It, go- it goes back and forth between relief and room for error. And every time he's in a room for error phase, I hold my breath. I start thinking, am I doing this all wrong? What am I doing? Oh my God, it's all falling apart and I want to hold on to the reins. But I, I've learned by now to just, he has lessons to learn mm. and to just be the safe place to fall. But then when he's in the, the, when the pendulum swings the other way and I see that this is, brings him so much autonomy, so much relief, he's in charge of his life. I mean, I'm just watching him blossom in a way that we never could have orchestrated who he is now, mm. ever, ever. So you meet with teens and you meet with parents. What is the pushback you get, the resistance? Uh, just the societal messages that they've received that, that I'm trying to tell them all of that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's hard for parents to hear. Uh, for teens, they're thrilled to hear it. <laughs> they're, they're like, tell my mom. <laughs> so the teens is effortless. They're like, thank God. But no, the parents, they, it's hard to hear that you put so much work and so much energy and effort into something that that actually hurts them. It feels so crazy how much, you know, like we've talked about this very subject on previous conversations on the podcast that, you know, like my, my son has friends that have two activities after school every single day, piano, uh, parkour, uh, soccer, uh, swim, on the swim team, all of it. And, you know, I think, God, I should get my son in more like I'm not doing enough. You know, my son comes home and plays a lot of Minecraft, you know, and he loves it. And I think it's really hard because of those societal messages to kind of hold your ground and try something different. Oh, yeah, it's hard. Um, You have to reconcile all your issues with um, like playing a role, you know, like being a good girl. (laughs) Like for me, I had to face a lot of stuff that was like, just be a good girl. And just if you do the right things, then you'll get rewarded. And so I had to deal with, no, this is, I'm playing the long game. Mm-hmm. And my kid's not going to look that impressive for a really long time. Like all these other kids are speaking languages and excelling and getting into the advanced programs at school. And he's average Joe, you know, like he's just a regular kid. And he's lo- pretty exceptional, actually. Well, now he's coming forth, yeah. I think, in, in a way that externally people appreciate but that doesn't mean any more to me than watching all the ways that he had to grow quietly, mm. you know, that nobody was going to pat him on the back for. So, but because I've checked out, but checking out of that is really hard. Like learning that. Um, it's it, unlearning, unlearning about yeah. the, the college game, the right. AP classes, all of the additional tutors, all of it is hard to unlearn. And not push your child over the edge. Yeah. You literally have to mourn the loss 
of the potential that you felt like you saw in your child, but you mistook. We see beautiful things in our kids, but um, our society says everything is about external achievement and potential. And so you'll feel really naturally pressured to always push your child to achieve their peak potential of how they can be productive for others or how they can make life easier for others. And so you have to mourn that. You have to mourn that my child might not redeem me and my issues from my childhood. Also, my child might not um, make me fit into society better. My child might not be impressive to anyone but me and kind of have to deal with that and what that brings up, honestly. But I think something that you talk about a lot, I I think there is a lot to do with you cannot, your child will will not hear your tr- heal your trauma. Yeah. And that it has to be you. And so being, you know, kind of learning from you, learning these ideas and concepts from you to unwind some of those things, it is interesting to even see, no, I think she, I think she's right, you know, <laughs> and seeing my son who's, you know, highly sensitive and just a different kid blossom in a different way Mm -hmm. the craziest thing happened so my son is really small and I was talking to him yesterday and he's like yeah there's this kid I hate him and he's in my table and I was like why do you hate him he's like he just is mean he just asked me all the time why am I so small why why do I why am I small what's wrong with me and I was like wow Danny that that sounds really upsetting that doesn't sound very nice and he said, but I always tell him it's, it's a hereditary trait. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. And I was like, yes, Danny. <laughs> Go Danny. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and it's funny because when my mother was alive and I would talk about my son being small, you know, because people would pick on him all the time and she would say, tell him he'll grow. And I was like, no, yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to tell him that. And I would tell him. Danny, you're probably always going to be smaller than the other kids, but it has nothing to do with who you are, you know? And so it's been fun unlearning some of those things and seeing these little nuggets of just him embodying who he really is. Yeah, and sharing that with you because you're a safe place to fall versus if you were always coming back with some sort of like comeback yeah, you know, well, he's a jerk, yeah, you know? Then, then he would be like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. you're not relatable. and He's just jealous of you. Yeah, yeah, he's, all that nonsense. He's jealous that you're small. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're just the safe place to fall. Oh, well, what do you think is going to happen in season five? What's your prediction? Um, Steve just better not die. I don't think he will. But I don't know who Nancy's going to end up with. Mm. I don't know what's going to happen with all the monsters i'm like way more into this with the other guy in real life but she well yeah but that's got what's the other guy story steve jonathan jonathan it is in the storyline remember like i know but i'm saying just because she's with him in real life doesn't mean oh that's true i don't know do you think vecna will really really die or do you think they'll be like this is the final season but they have all these offshoot shows that they're uh creating maybe I don't know. I can't. I never can predict what's going to happen with the monsters because I'm always so much more caught up in like the human uh-huh. aspect of it. But no, I'm, I'm just really interested. I think what I get most excited about is like what movies inspired this season. So I'll be really interested to hear like which 80s movies are they kind of tipping the hat to. So what were the movies for the four seasons? I mean, I just know really season one was like Jaws, uh, Goonies and E.T. <laughs> and I don't remember season two was like goth L. Remember it was like goth oh, yeah, L. Yeah, yeah. And I don't remember what I can't remember what that was. But I know one of the seasons it was Fletch. Remember Fletch? Oh yeah, Chevy Chase. Fletch was one of the I don't remember which season if it was two or three. We'll have to look it up. Yeah, look up all the things. But I remember really cool. this last one was um, it's a few movies, but this I remember one of them was Nightmare on Elm Street, which was very clear. I mean, and obviously oh, yeah. having that cameo. Robert England. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was like, oh, that's all very cool to me. So I'll be excited to see what inspires season five. So I started to go down a rabbit hole and I read somewhere, I don't know if this is going to be true, that they're going to shrink and just kind of have the fifth season with just the original characters, 
which I love Maya Hawk. What's her name? Robin. I mm-hmm. love her. I'm such a fan of Ethan Hawk and Robin. I don't know, but who said that? I saw it in some article. Who Why knows? do they throw us all these new characters? I, just to- I don't know, because <laughs> everybody fell in love with them. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I'm kind of Erica cool. will be there. I don't know. Yeah, like why? Why play up her her storyline and then just like nix her in the next? Who knows? Season? Or even Max? You know, like Max had such. A I don't big think part. they can touch Max because that's the thing about this do you show. Think Max is, will come back, or do you think she she'll be blind to. or something? I don't know what shape she's going to be in, but yeah. I think she's got to come back. Um, what's funny about the show for for me and working with parents and teens is. When season one came out, it hit us. It hit the nostalgic crew. It hit Gen Xers. Um, and then by season four, because there was so many, much time between the seasons, season four was actually kind of the first time that Gen Z got a hold of the show. Huh. And so now it's had this huge resurgence of interest from a Gen Z level. And now they're wrapping up in their final season. Like, what are they going to do with that? The fact that they have so many new fans that are from a completely different generation. That's really fascinating to me. It's insane. Like, what are they going to do? Well, thank you so much, Cindy. This was such a fun conversation. Yes, thanks for having me. And scary. (laughs) But promising, hopeful. And strange. It was strange. It was a strange conversation. Until next time. Listen, I know hearing this stuff is really hard to implement. There's so much pressure and expectation from our culture that it just doesn't make it easy. It's very easy to go, well, what about this? What about that? But maybe trying little by little and seeing how it works for you and your child. Maybe Cindy Robinson is onto something. As usual, she's not wrong. It just takes us sharing these episodes and ideas in our own circles to create some meaningful meaningful change as people learn about it. Our family's mental health is worth it. I've linked Cindy's info in the show notes. As for me, I'm now offering one-on-one wellness coaching. Who is it for? Well, I kind of specialize in burnt-out women looking for more time and energy and alignment. So I'm offering free 20-minute calls to see if we might want to work together. Go to allisonhair.com and grab a spot. And while you're there, sign up to get my weekly emails with quick insights to help you right where you are. And if you want to become a beloved supporter and join the Late Learner family, go to patreon.com forward slash late learner. Your life will dramatically improve. Be good to yourself so you can be better for others. I'll see you on the socials if I don't see you before the pod returns next Thursday.